Fertility Institute of Hawaii. I'm John Fraterelli with the Fertility Institute of Hawaii. And we have a distinguished guest today, Dr. Gray Hirata. We'll have him introduce himself now. Hi, I'm Gray Hirata. I'm a maternal fetal medicine geneticist at the Fetal Diagnostic Institute of the Pacific. Thank you. So today we're just going to be having an open discussion about recurrent pregnancy loss. Um, and if any of you guys are um, watching us, certainly you're, um, you're welcome to post some questions for us to answer for you guys or comments. We'll try to just kind of pay attention to the live feed here. Um, and uh, don't feel free to, to go ahead and interrupt us. So um, I think we can just kind of start out by talking about the definition of recurrent pregnancy loss. There have been um, a few different definitions and also, you know, changes in terms of, of the definition of recurrent pregnancy loss. So, uh, Dr. Harada, what do you go with? What's what's your definition of recurrent pregnancy loss? Well, I, I use the two consecutive unexplained miscarriages definition. I think the the data suggests that the, the likelihood of the third miscarriage is as high as if you had three and having a fourth miscarriage. So I, I start the workup, I rec recommend the workup after two unexplained miscarriages. Do you use two consecutive or two just in general? I, I use two consecutive. consecutive. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we do the same thing as well. Um, we oftentimes will have patients who may have scattered miscarriages throughout and, and have a, a couple of, of live births as well. Does that concern you at all? Let's say somebody's had you know four miscarriages, but they've had two live births kind of scattered in between. Um, what would you do in that case? Well, it, it would um, direct my recommendations a little bit because if they've had normal children, then although not a hundred percent, but you know um, familial translocations probably are less likely in those cases. So I'm not so worried about the the genetics of the chromosomes as much. I mean, it's always nice to check anyway, but but it's less likely. Yeah. So that that would that would uh, skew my recommendations for 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 workup a little bit. And I think it's important for the audience to know too that you know miscarriages are not uncommon. You know, somewhere between fifteen and twenty five percent of pregnancy of recognized pregnancies will miscarry depending on the patient's age, um, and and the amount of embryos that actually miscarry prior to a clinical clinically being recognized is much, much higher um, because embryos end up being abnormal or they just don't implant into the uterus for some reason. Mm -hmm. But having a clinically recognized pregnancy with miscarriage uh, uh, multiple times in a row um, is definitely concerning and, and, and deserves an evaluation. Uh, I guess that's what we can kind of talk about next is, you know, some of the causes and evaluation that we would do. Mm -hmm. It sort of depends on when you miscarry as well. I mean, if you miscarry very early, eight, nine, ten weeks, sometimes without even an embryo, that has a slightly different etiology than if you miscarry recurrently at 12, 13, 14 weeks, which um, some people do. And, and I think the, the medical history makes a big difference too because we know that there's medical illnesses that have recurrent pregnancy loss as, as part of their um, I guess their presentation. And are you more concerned with, with patients that, that, you know, if someone's having very early losses, six or seven weeks, eight, eight versus someone who's having 13, 14, 15 week losses, which one concerns you more? Well, different reasons for 
I mean, the different concerns for different reasons. And in the, in the eight to 12, eight to 10 range, seven to 10 range, I'm more concerned about chromosomes. And maybe, I'm not sure if you're a big fan of progesterone insufficiency, but I, I do believe that there's gonna be some benefit to progesterone in those cases. In the 12, 13 week uh, losses, that's classic for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. They tend to lose late in the first trimester. And so I would probably pursue that a little bit closer, a little bit more vigilantly. Yeah. And then um, I guess before we get into more specifics about some of the causes and maybe we can talk about progesterone a little bit, that's always an interesting topic. But um, what do you think about biochemical pregnancies and those uh, those losses? I was saying before biochemical pregnancies were even in existence. I think that's a little different. If you don't even have a stack, I, I mean, it's hard to say that's a recurring pregnancy loss to me. But I suppose it is included in the whole um, definition. I suppose we have to treat those similarly. But like I said, the, the etiology is a little different for our right. As opposed to yeah, plus data definitely there. There are some uh, there's some suggestion that biochemical pregnancy is actually less associated with um, age compared to some of the you know first trimester losses. So there may even be less of a genetic component. You know, it's uh, mm. so it's interesting um, and and a little bit unclear. I think whether it exactly goes into the the definition of recurrent pregnancy loss or not. Um, but usually, I I don't know about you, but I sort of do this a similar workup um, into how to biochemical pregnancies um, just to see if if we can uncover anything there. Well, yeah, and I, I think for us, you know, as patients who are especially going on, undergoing IVF, you know, we have a limited number of embryos for those patients, so you know, if they're having biochemicals, we have to be a little bit more aggressive with with looking at. Uh, what the cause might be, as opposed to maybe someone who comes in who's had you know, a couple of positive pregnancy tests at home and then it was negative when she went in. You know, it might be a little bit different, but I can't start the evaluation on those patients um, just to do, you know, just to make sure that you don't miss anything. Uh, and I guess, you know, kind of just looking at, the, at certain, the, some of the causes just for the people who are listening, and we've kind of talked about genetics, genetic causes, and we can talk about genetics a little bit more. There's obviously ages as people get older, they're more likely to miscarry, and that's probably more of a chromosomal issue with with, uh, with the embryos as well. There can be uterine issues that we'll need to evaluate the uterus for. Um, Antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, which uh, Dr. Rana mentioned, I think we should definitely t t discuss a little bit more. Um, and then there's you know some questionable etiologies like infection, you know, uh, you know, and definitely if there's somebody has a florid uterine infection, that, that definitely can be a, a, a problem. Um, more commonly now, people are talking about more and more sperm, you know, issues. Now that we're finding a little bit more more out about sperm, but that, but the cause of you know causing a recurrent miscarriage and that etiology being sperm, you know, being being the etiologies would be really rare and, and, and not high on the list. Um, and then I think there's you know the lifestyle factors which we never want to forget, right? So people who are smoking, drinking, you know, mm -hmm. the high a lot of caffeine, high BMIs, not taking care of themselves. Uh, I think that, you know, even though that, that's typically not going to cause recurrent miscarriages, it increases your risk for miscarrying every time you get pregnant. So you want to do everything possible to, to maximize your chances when you're, when you're trying to get pregnant. I think you should also include medical illnesses because although it's very rare, uh, occult diabetes or thyroid disease, mm -hmm. uh, although it's rare, it's 
easily treatable. So that's why I, I work them up for I mean diabetes and, and, and thyroid disease because at least I know I can I can treat them. Um, but as a cause of recurrent miscarriages, actually, it's pretty low on the list. Right. Yeah, and, and, and so to that end, like you know, hyperprolactin, you know, so, so high, high levels of prolactin it will increase your risk. So all those things kind of increase your risk. They may not necessarily cause recurrent pregnancy loss, but if you're already if you already had a miscarriage and now your pregnancy risk is higher, you want to do everything your your everything possible to make it as low, you know, to right. mitigate that risk, right? Right. Reduce the risk. I yeah. I end by the way, John. I end with uh, the, the issue about infection because almost every single article you see on recurrent pregnancy loss will have an infection as an etiology. And I tell them there's no way I can test for it. I can't treat for it anyway. But just remember that infection is the leading cause just so that we've covered everything that you might have read about. And, then, you know, patients are very, very intelligent and very uh, savvy, they go look on the internet, they look at all the lists. Uh, I try to be as complete as possible, but yeah, infection is a, a big one. I can't figure out how to treat it anyway. I just have to mention. Yeah, no, I, I think um, that's that's a big one for us too, because the testing for you know chronic endometritis is typically utilizing an endometrial biopsy and looking for signs of inflammation. It's not really even signs of infection, and then it's questionable. I think it's it can be you know pathology dependent. Um, you know, sometimes in some place, some areas you, you have a lot of chronic inflammation, and other you know in Hawaii, for example, we don't get a lot of reads that read chronic inflammation when we send out those. Uh, those tests. So um, oftentimes we'll kind of treat them empirically, um, you know, with doxycycline prior to an IVF cycle. I mean, in natural pregnancy, right, you don't exactly know when the patient's going to get pregnant. How are you going to treat it? You can't just put them on doxy all the time until they, you know, until they conceive. Um, but when we're going to be doing, you know, a, a embryo transfer, we actually can try and treat some inflammation. And so we'll use um, oftentimes oxycycline and uh, like a, you know, a probiotic actually to try to. Um, you wouldn't for the entire pregnancy though. You just no, treat them. we just treat them once for presumed, I mean, if they have recurrent pregnancy loss, you know, and, and we're not really seeing another clear etiology, we'll treat mm -hmm. them prior to an embryo transfer with a longer course of doxycycline. Yeah. I guess, you know, for when we evaluate recurrent pregnancy loss, we have a different statistic of probably about half of the patients we find a, a you know a cause, and the other half we're not really sure what it is. Um, and then we start having to, we go down another algorithm after that, and, and infection is one of them. Yeah, you know, there's a there was a study out of Stanford a few years ago um, where you know looking at you know looking at the endometrium and doing PCR based testing, where they did find that over half of the patients had evidence of chronic endometritis. And so for that reason, we just give patients you know two weeks of doxy for that and. Um, Trying to you know trying to find something that might that might be a benefit. You mentioned um, progesterone um, as, as an option as well, and, and obviously there have been you know, studies looking at that. And, um, meta analyses have shown that it has it's not effective, but then there's also studies that show that it, that um, there's there's one, st one study that shows that if you've had three miscarriages in a row, that it is effective. So you know, it's, but it's harmless. Well, it's, so it's a benign medication. So right. I say. It may not work or may work, but if it does work, it's it's uh, not much risk to you, it's just inconvenient. 
I know that urea plasma and mycoplasma are proposed organisms that can can meet the chronic endometritis. And in my reading, the intracellular organisms like that, you can't eradicate. And it's actually very difficult to culture. So you know what the PCR uh, based test looked for that particular, those two types of- uh, I'll have to go back and look and see what they were, what they were, what they were specifically targeting. Yeah, and I know you can't eradicate it anyway, so you could probably suppress it, maybe in uh, for the time of implantation that'll that'll help, but you can't really get rid of that. Uh, yeah, yeah, and that's and, and we're kind of working on um, doing everything we can to to kind of suppress right suppress any kind of inflammation specifically for for implantation time. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't think the data for using antibiotics are, are very robust, honestly. Right. So it's right. it's hard. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, in terms of progesterone, that's the other tough thing about diagnosis because it's it's become very clear that there's um, really no way to to diagnose uh, luteal phase insufficiency. You know, that's that's not really. Um, we used to think that endometrial biopsy would be able. to was that and it became clear that, that we couldn't do that either. So that's another thing that we sort of treat prophylactically and say, well, you know, sort of just in case um, this is this is the issue. I mean, with IVF, of course, uh, we're treating with progesterone anyway, but for our current pregnancy loss patients, we're achieving pregnancy naturally or um, through the use of IUI, um, then we'll we'll treat with uh, with some type of progesterone. Yeah. So it sounds like we do recommend the same thing you guys treat and i i i give the recommendations for those things and then i i i always like to underscore the fact that you know even though um prenatal vitamins or some sort of vitamin supplement doesn't necessarily ensure that you'll have a successful pregnancy it'll increase the risk of having a good pregnancy so you have less likely having problems with um uh, birth defects related to folate deficiency or something like that. So I, I tell all my pre-conceptual -pre patients you should be on some sort of a, a multivite. And I think the, the minimum is 400 micrograms or 0.4 milligrams of folic acid. But it's clear that uh, vitamins do decrease your risk for heart defects, spina bifida. So there's something that everybody should take. Is there, is there any... So one of the questions I do get from my patients is how long do I need to be on the prenatal vitamins prior to trying to get pregnant? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Well, I think folic acid is actually so water soluble that, you know, the, the levels fluctuate really relatively quickly. So I think months would be fine. Even a few weeks would be fine before. You probably have high enough levels of serum folate, folate at that point. Um, right. I don't know what the right answer is. As soon as you find you're pregnant, you better exactly. be on. It better to be before. Actually, it does so much more in terms of health benefits, and it's interesting. Um, the statistics on who takes vitamins is pretty much inversely proportional to your age. So the older you get, the more likely you are to take it. The younger people don't take it at all. So. Well, I mean, you know, having been uh, a person who was pregnant and had to take prenatal vitamins. It's pretty awful. And um, I, yeah, had to work really hard to take them. I do make the recommendation, especially in the first trimester patients to try um, things like gummy vitamins, which don't contain a lot of iron. I think the, or any iron, 
probably, I think it's the iron and you know, you probably don't need that much iron in the first trimester. Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you know, especially if you're not anemic with the, you know, that initial CBC. And I think just for the patients who are watching, the gummy vitamins typically are much better tolerated um, or, you know, vitamins without that, that additional. It doesn't have to be a prenatal vitamin either. Any multivitamin. Yes, anything that is acid or just folic acid actually alone. Yeah. Really yeah. okay. I did know not to take too many um, fat soluble vitamins for sure. Vitamin A in, in large quantities can cause birth defects and possibly vitamin E, although the, the, the data is not quite clear on vitamin E. So anything that you tell, take in a gel cap, cap I call them, to try to limit stay into the recommended daily allowance and not try to go over. I think 10,000 international units for vitamin A uh, would, would be the guidelines. Yeah. So no extra vitamin A or no extra vitamin E supplements. Just take it one, one a day, keep the doctor away. <laughs> yeah. well, higher doses of vitamin E can sometimes be used during frozen embryo transfer cycles to try and improve lining. We really use that protocol, but I have seen that. Right. Um, but then we stop yeah, it at the time of transfer, so they're not getting Right, they're not getting, not getting it when they're, when they're pregnant. So, you know, obviously, you know, reasons, you know, one of the etiologies is a genetic, you know, patients that may have a, a translocation, so they have a karyotypic abnormality, so do karyotypes on, on the on, on the patients and the male and female partner and it's about what two to three percent chance that each uh, that either one of them would be positive it's a total of five percent chance that, that the, the couple at some point would be positive and and so we send them then to you with you know if they had if they had this you know chromosomal abnormality typically it's a Robertsonian translocation translocation what, what what do you tell them at that point what what are your what are your guidelines for them at that point well, first of all, um, Robertsonian translocations you can pretty much work out. Uh, if it's a 21-21 translocation, then all the pregnancies are going to have Down syndrome. So that one is easy. Uh, but some of the other Robertsonian translocations have a one in six. Uh, there's six different possibilities, obviously, from six, six different uh, um, combinations, uh, four of the six probably results, or three of the six probably results in a non-viable pregnancy to begin with. So monosomy of some sort or trisomy that's never been seen in uh, a live born. But the, the trisomic ones that may result in Down syndrome or Edwards syndrome um, are the ones that are more problematic. And, and um, because of natural selection, even though empirically it may be 30, 33%, actually in actuality, the, the uh, uh, likelihood of a fetus having uh, trisomic or, or trisomic for chromosome number 21, for example, probably is in the order of five to 10, maybe 15%. But they would be benef they would benefit from some sort of uh, either uh, uh, a DNA-based pre uh, serum-based uh, screening, like non-invasive prenatal or non-invasive prenatal testing, or a more diagnostic test like a CVS or an amnio. But fortunately, we don't see those very often. I remember seeing them in, in fellowship because they presented uh, with infertility, actually, and it was not the mom, it was the husband that had the Robertsonian transformation. You know, right. I get oligospermia probably as well. Yeah. And then for the non 
Robert's only in translocation. So let's just say a, a balanced translocation. It really is so variable. You cannot predict what's going to happen because you can be missing pieces that could be significant that may result in a miscarriage, or but you or you could be missing pieces that are not significant enough to cause a miscarriage, but might later on have uh, imbalance in the in the chromosomes of the fetus that might result in uh, some sort of a, a neuro. Uh, cognitive developmental delay, but you can't really predict. Everyone has their own unique set of uh, breakpoints, that's why. And that's why we send them to you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and of course, there's, there's the option to do in vitro fertilization with uh, pre-implantation genetic testing of the embryos to, right. uh, when we know there's an issue, then we can um, test the embryos ahead, ahead of time. It it's, um, sounds simple, but it's quite a challenge because, um, you know, if only one in six, one in eight of these embryos are expected to be sort of mm -hmm. unaffected, I mean, it, it can be very, very challenging to get enough embryos from these patients. It really mm -hmm. depends on the ovarian reserve of the uh, of the partner, it can be really a challenge to get enough embryos to be able to um, to find those, you know, those balanced embryos. Um, so I definitely urge patients who know that they are um, you know, balanced translocation carriers to definitely seek help, um, you know, right away um, to ensure that we get get as many eggs as we can safely and and be able to to get them the best success rate possible. And just you know, just on the side there too, I think. When you look at the IVF and doing PGT, we actually see that that um, we don't see a one in six um, because we're testing at the blastocyst stage. So they're probably losing a lot of a lot of the embryos that are abnormal before they get tested. So we actually usually will find a normal embryo or two that can be used. Um, you know, in my experience, usually a third to half of the embryos are actually probably usable or, or, or normal, um, at least for the translocation. And so, you know, I think you're just losing a lot of those embryos are just not viable and they, they right. just stop growing at some point. Right. Yeah. Here's a question because I know it came up, I think it was one of your patients. Um, you have known aneuploidy in the embryos and you don't have any more embryos left. And we all know that the phenomenon of trisomic cell rescue, what do you tell them? Should they or should they not? I say for sure you got to get testing afterwards. But yeah, I tell them you should see Dr. Harada, and whatever <laughs> Dr. Harada says is is what we'll do. Well, I mean there there are two different um, because I think that there's also mosaicism, right? So we are sending more and more patients with mosaic embryos. Just for the audience members, um, mosaicism is where. Um, we find some cells uh, from the embryo which are normal and some which are not. There is kind of low-level mosaicism and higher-level mosaicism where, um, where low-level would be if, you know, most of the cells are, uh, are normal. A higher level would be if there are fewer normal cells but still some present. And the question is, you know, is that embryo going to be a normal embryo or is it going to be a mosaic abnormal embryo and lead to either a miscarriage or a child with you know, live-born child with issues, um, and so I think that you know at this point we're much more comfortable with um, training the mosaic embryos. Uh, we've kind of gotten gotten our comfort up a little bit. I mean, not just us, but just the community. You know, the reproductive endocrinology community. Now that we know more about it, and they're good. You know, there's a, a lot. There are a lot of data about normal children being born from those embryos. But the sensitivity for genetic testing in terms of 
any ploidy is um, is pretty pretty good. And so, I mean, I will usually not recommend transferring an embryo that has a known um, aneuploidy unless that's not mosaic, unless the patient very strongly, I guess, desires it, then I'll send them to talk to you about it. I don't know what your thoughts are, John, or? Well, I think, you know, for, for me, if, if, uh, if, if it's their last, if it's the last embryo, it's the only embryo they have, um, and it's, it's an embryo that's not going to end in a live birth, right? So it's, you know, it's trisomy eight or, or something like that, that, or monosomy five, something we know that something that's not out there. Um, then I, I let them know, yeah, certainly we can do this transfer. There's a very small chance that maybe this was just an abnormality within the placenta and the you know, fetus can be fine. Um, but if not, it's not going to end in a live birth. You might have an early miscarriage. Um, and so certainly we could try that. But I would also you know, have them always talk to somebody like yourself first before doing anything like that. Well, this is a this is an issue that is intriguing because there are, as you know, chromosomes that have imprinting issues, 7, 14, 8, I think, too. And you would think that if there's a risk of uniparental disomy where you have an imprinted gene or imprinted chromosome, you try to shy away from those because although we can do uh, – invasive testing and try to determine if the two chromosomes are from the same parent. Um, it, is, it is another layer that you have to add on to uh, the whole counseling issue. But, you know, you know, I know, we know, we all know there's there's cases and I had a very interesting case once about identical twins. One baby had trisomy 18, the other baby was perfectly normal. So you know that mosaicism and differential or preferential uh, uh, normal cell line viability doesn't exist. And so it's hard to tell patients, you know, there's no hope. You know, there's always a possibility. Yeah. And, and what I tell people, I mean, probably about only about 50% of our patients are doing genetic testing anyway. So we're, I mean, we're transferring these abnormal embryos all the time. You know? and, and I tell people that although most embryos are abnormal, I mean, most kids are normal and that's, mm -hmm because of uh, the fact that the majority of these embryos which are abnormal just won't implant um, or, you know, or, or, or they'll result in an early miscarriage. But the majority of the time, um, if, if I put in an abnormal embryo and I didn't know it, uh, most of the time it just won't, it just won't implant. Um, it's nice to have that information ahead of time. I think, you know, again, it gives the patients a lot of closure and understanding um, when they have those results and understand, okay, all my embryos are abnormal and I'm going to move on to do another cycle versus proceeding with transfer after transfer, or perhaps having, um, you know, early, early losses and things like that. Um, but I think we should also, um, because antiphospholipid syndrome is a big one. I, I definitely want to make sure we, we get that in um, because that's something that we, um, that we test for quite a bit. And it's something that, um, we, we treat quite quite a quite a bit, um, and so I and, just want to hear something your, yeah. that we see differently than you, right? Because right? we yeah. see the early pregnancy losses, you see the later pregnancy losses, and the severe preeclampsia, you know, that that then potentially would lead to uh, evaluation of patients. Right. So maybe you can just take us through the definition um, and when you test for that. Well, there's clinical and there's biochemical uh, definitions that you have to surpass. Uh, the clinical one would be two or more unexplained consecutive miscarriages or some sort of a um, 
a medical condition, it's like unexplained blood clots. Some people include uh, adverse or prior pregnancy as adverse outcomes like a severe early onset preeclampsia. And then the biochemical part would be significant anti-phospholipid antibodies or anti-lupus anticoagulant. And it should be repeated uh, 12 weeks. So that's the part that's oftentimes it's not done. That they don't repeat it after 12 weeks. They just label a patient. And the, the antibodies do wax and wane. You know, they go up sometimes, they go down sometimes. But it does make a difference for the way we treat them because if we treat them with a combination of aspirin and anticoagulation. That's a long time to be on an anticoagulant. You have to worry about blood clotting and bleeding and and reactions to the anticoagulant. Fortunately, they allow us to use low molecular weight heparin, but in the, in the past, we'd have to use heparin and it'd get these, these huge, huge uh, uh bruises in their stomach. It was, it was really a, a lot of treatment. I have no problem putting anyone in aspirin. I think so I it's like, it's such, it must be like such a pet peeve of yours when you see us put these patients on um, low and high. Yeah, <laughs> sure and then after, after delivery implications, someone who really has APAS are going to be at risk for blood clots postpartum yeah. as well. So you need to treat those patients for six or eight weeks with anticoagulation. And it's hard to, you know, if you pull the, tr pull the trigger, it takes a lot. You know, because I, I know that it's a commitment on their part to take a lot of anticoagulants. And then there's, there's a differing, even amongst material fetal medicine people, how much how much Slovenox to give them. You give them a low prophylaxis or a high prophylaxis, or some people even go therapeutic. Uh, and you know, you you almost you can almost write whatever protocol you want because there's someone always uh, who has a protocol that matches what you're gonna give. So you kinda have to use if you give a low amount of Lovenox, 40 milligrams a day, for example. That's not as bad. I think that's probably less likely to you for you to run into trouble with. Um, but if you're going to give them full anticoagulation, which is one milligram per kilo PID, that's a lot of Lovenox. Yeah. Yes, I mean for for us, you know, um, obviously when somebody meets the criteria for antiphospholipid syndrome, then you know they get treated uh, with with Lovenox and aspirin, um, but mm -hmm. Are, you know, what, what ends up happening, okay, is that we have patients who, you know, they come to us, they've done IVF, I don't know how many times, they've had how many transfers, they've had, you know, four miscarriages, and the only thing that's positive is a couple of, you know, some low, some low positive um, antibodies. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we look at that and look at the clinical picture and what these patients have undergone, um, and we will typically treat them. And so, you know, it, I think um, that they don't really, you know, meet the criteria based on the, the low, sort of low positive um, inter, or, uh, intermediate category antibodies. Um, but you know, I think we're kind of stuck in a situation where we're treating them with prophylactic lobinox um, is is probably the, the best thing that we can do. And I think, as you mentioned, treating with prophylactic lobinox and, and lotus aspirin is probably not uh, not not too harmful, um, in particular in the first trimester. 
And yeah. a lot of you know, this not just that we're we're treating them, that you know, there's there's actually um, um, meta-analysis out there that's that's looked at trials for patients who've had uh, recurrent implantation failure, recurrent miscarriage, you know, recurrent miscarriages without any etiology, and treating them with Lovenox uh, does significantly improve their right. outcome uh, with the next with the next treatment. So that that's actually regardless of the of the labs, that's just treating for right. kind of more unexplained implantation failure or recurrent loss without um, without lab work at all. So do you continue for the rest of the pregnancy? What about weeks? So, to 12 yeah. weeks, and you stop. Right. Yeah. That's, that's what, that, that's what the, the, uh, the other studies have shown is it's up to 12 weeks, and then you stop it. Um, I think that, you know, w with recurrent pregnancy loss, with, with antibody syndrome, that 12 weeks is really hard. It's a hard sell for patients. You know, they've been having miscarriage now or, or infertility, either one. They've had treatments. This has lasted for so long, and now we say, okay, we think we have something. Let's wait three months and test it again. You know, they're not very happy. So, you know, so obviously, you know, having them go see you during that time, potentially, um, you know, I typically will try to test them again around that six to eight week mark, because if, if it's, if it's negative, then, okay, we're, we, they don't have the, they don't have the diagnosis. If it's still positive, then, you know, I talked to them about maybe trying to wait another month and getting to that 12 week mark to, to, to get a test, unless for some reason they just can't do it. I don't know. Is that? That sound like a reasonable plan? I think that's reasonable as long as they're not labeled as APAS. I mean, because I, sometimes they come with that label and, and it, it triggers a whole cascade of interventions that may not be necessary. But it makes sense. You're going to treat them with some low molecular weight heparin just to get them pregnant and implant. You're treating them for their infertility, not necessarily for APAS. And it, the question is, do they continue that? Um, because you want to now make sure that they don't get a blood clot and the baby continues to grow. Yeah, yeah we would just need to make sure when we when we pass those patients off to the OBGYN that we uh, we always kind of tell them what the plan is. We tell them when we were stopping progesterone and uh, baby aspirin if we have on baby aspirin and Lovenox if we have on Lovenox, and then we leave it leave it up to the OBGYN if they want to continue on for what for another reason, you know, look at, uh, and they want to continue uh, continue the baby aspirin or something else for for some other reason. Yeah. Um, what about what about I guess just very very shortly? What are your thoughts about some of the other some of the things that are out there in the literature that have been out there forever that really haunt us? You know, the other uh, the inherited thrombophilias and the autoimmune factors that people you know kind of you know come in. And I love they have their information. Ooh, and I have to ask about MTHFR after. Okay. I have to. I have to laugh because you know maybe 15 years ago with all the rage, recurrent pregnancy loss from, I think the, the relative risk was 2.2 something like that for five, factor five Leiden mutations, and then it kind of went away. So I, I don't typically treat unless there's a, a significant family history. Or maybe if there's more than one type of thrombophilia present, because it's so common, and, and um, factor five Leiden and the prothrombin mutation occur between two and three, some say up to five percent of Caucasians. You could have both of them, and I think they're additive because they affect the blood clotting system differently. Um, or if someone has a really strong family history where 
they say their mom or their father or a sibling had a blood clot unexplained, I would treat them differently than someone who just has an asymptomatic uh, rectified vitamin that was detected during a infertility workup. Like I said, I have no problem with aspirin, although aspirin is not a true anticoagulant. Um, but I would shy against using low And this is probably not your patient population because they're not necessarily infertile. But um, some patients come to me and say, I have defectified vitamin. What should I do? I'm pregnant. You know, I have never had problems with birth control pills. And I, I tend to not treat them. Now, postpartum is a different story because 50% would have uh, blood clots. 50% of women that have blood clots in pregnancy have it in nine months leading up to delivery. And another 50% have it in the six to eight weeks postpartum. So it seems like it's more prevalent in the after delivery. And that part, you might want to consider anticoagulation for that six to eight week period to get them through the hypercoagulability of uh, in, in pregnancy. Right. Um, that's how I approach it. Now, if, if they come because of recurrent pregnancy loss and that's the only thing you find, God, I'd have to scratch my head and think about that. I'm not quite sure. Well, we're not, you know, I mean, we're not doing that testing because, um, you know, the literature has shown that um, there are, that they don't have higher rates of miscarriage, you know, that, that they, that their patient, I'm sorry, rather patients with miscarriage don't have higher rates of um, the inherited thrombophilia. So it doesn't really make sense to test the patients with recurrent pregnancy loss for these conditions when they don't, they don't have higher rates of it. It's, there's not a strong association there. Um, but, you know, we kind of oftentimes don't know what to do with them if they come to us with it, you know, they sort of come mm -hmm. to us with this testing and they've had miscarriages and then it, it gets a little bit more dicey. Um, I do want to bring up specifically the MTHFR patients. Um, and, um, you know, I think we have our, you know, our REI data about this. And um, I want to hear your what you think about that. Well, MTHFR is also very common. And heterozygotes, which is one normal, one abnormal, typically don't have problems. But remember, it's not the gene itself. It's how they metabolize folic acid. And so if they're not exhibiting signs of hyperhomocysteinemia, which is the end result of the mutation, then they should not be at risk for blood clots. So I just check a fasting homocysteine level. I tell them to take folic acid. And if the fasting homocysteine level is normal, I don't think they need much further. They need to take folic acid probably for the rest of their life, but that's about it. Do you recommend testing for MTHFR mutations? Um, when, when, how do you find these patients? Are you testing them under any circumstances? Are they well, coming? They usually they come in because they, they've had a blood clot or they have a fam okay. strong mixture of blood clots. So as part of the panel, I'm more worried about uh, the common ones, the factor V light-in, the prothrombin mutation. I get a fasting homocysteine level, MTHFR maybe. I might get a protein S and a protein C and an antithrombin 3. Those three are less common, but they're much more thrombogenic, especially the antithrombin 3. Um, so they would be compel me to make uh, treat them for sure. Are you, um, 
but you're not doing just to be clear you're not doing that testing with the recurrent pregnancy patients who have not had a blood clot they just come in with recurrent pregnancy loss to you you're not doing any of those tests for them no no those are things you don't have no you're not doing that so. and and for you said folic acid is it is it do they need extra folic acid you know more than what's already in their vitamin or what was well if the fasting homocysteine level is normal with their vitamins, then they should probably adequately treat it. Some people would put them on one milligram a day, uh, which is prescription strength, I guess, is what one way to look at it. I wouldn't necessarily think they need four milligrams a day, which is what we use for patients that have had previous uh, pregnancies with uh, neural tube defects. But I would check their fasting homocysteine levels. And it's amazing how many people have normal fasting homocysteine levels, even the heterozygous for sure, but I haven't seen that many homozygous. It's not very common to see a uh, double mutation carrier, but um, those patients definitely need some folic acid. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Um, is there anything else that you want to, uh, you know, just say to I don't think um, I'm not seeing any questions. I'm just seeing people um, telling us and you that they love you and us. So that's what I'm seeing on this. Um, but yeah, is there anything else that you think uh, our patients should know? Uh, no, I think uh, once again, vitamins, healthy lifestyle, things that you can control. Uh, diabetes, absolutely. See us before you get pregnant so that we can get your sugars under control and improve your pregnancy outcome for sure. Um, even though it's a very, very small percentage of patients. Right. Continue trying because you never know how many patients we have between us that have um, kept on trying and eventually became successful. And the, to, to, to end with that, I mean, the overwhelming majority of patients who've had two miscarriages um, and even three will go on to have live birth. So most patients will go on to have a live birth, um, you know, kind of regardless, honestly. <laughs> Despite what we do with them. <laughs> well, Gray, Dr. Harada, thank you for taking your time and, sure. and joining us today. Thank you for your expertise and thank you for taking care of our patients when we send them to you. We really appreciate it. All your guidance and your help. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you. Bye, guys. Bye everybody.